0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com Children ages 4 and 5, you can be dismissed over to my left and your right. Miss Bree is standing there in the door. You guys can head over that way. And let me invite you, uh, who are not 4 or 5, who are staying in the room, uh, to open with me. Hey guys, you guys can head that way. Hey Miles, Lincoln, you guys can head that way. See, right over there. There you go. Thanks, Joe. I think we started something. Like, these kids are thoroughly Baptist, right? Because once they start something, it's hard to turn back from it, right? How many of you are sitting in the same seat you sat in last week? See, it's not just them, right? All right, so Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses, uh, Lord willing, verses 7 through 16 today. Uh, I come to this passage, Ephesians four seven through sixteen, and I, I have a confession. That's probably not a confession if you've been with us uh, for for a number of years. Uh, this is—I think this will be the third time I've preached this passage um, since I've been your pastor here. And I don't—it's not intentional. It's you know, but here here I am walking through the book of Ephesians, and I can't just come to this passage and say, "Oh, I've dealt with that two other times," you know. Nor did I feel like it was okay for me to just come and say, huh, I already have a sermon, I'll just pull that baby out and just warm this thing up and serve it to you today. So what I'm trying to do today, Lord willing, with the Lord's help, is to bring to you the same passage of Scripture. We talked about this in my Sunday school class this morning, is that every passage has one meaning. But it can be applied in multiple ways. Also, I would say that we can look at the Bible. We can look at different passages, different verses, and we can look at it and and God can show us something about that. And then later on, we're at a different stage of life. God can sort of rotate the, the diamond of his word just a little bit and show us a new beauty there. And so what I'm wanting to do, what I'm asking the Lord to do, I am dependent on the Spirit of God and I believe in the power of the Spirit of God is I want you and me, I want us to see this passage in a new light today. There will be some things that are, that are old. that are you, You've heard these things before, but does that mean that we've heard it, so we just move on from it? No, absolutely not. There will also be, I pray, some things that are beautiful in a new way to you today. So if you will, Ephesians chapter 4. Before I read, let me just share this opening illustration with you. Imagine, there was, was once a tiny little town that sat at the foot of a mountain. This tiny little town, uh, decades ago, sat at this foot of the mountain and it flourished. And, and in this little town, there were, there were mills that turned. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, the, the old grist mills, there were mills that turned and gardens flourished. Because this little town was fed by a stream that flowed through this town that came from the melting snow on the top of this mountain. Well, For years, years went by, and this town flourished. The mill turned, and the gardens flourished, and life was good and happy in this little town. And one day, there was a meeting of the town council, and and they looked for ways that they could sort of clean up some expenses and maybe cut some expenses and maybe get their bottom line a little more in in line, right? Right? And so there was a man there in the town council, and he was looking over the expenditures of this town, and he came across this one line item that was uh, resource management, and and he didn't know what it was for. He asked around, he said, what is this? What is this money going toward? And no one could tell him. They didn't really know. It had just been there, It had been on the books for years and years. They'd been paying this out. No one really knew what this was going toward. So no one knew. They voted. Let's do away with this resource management, Right. They had no clue. It wasn't long before or long after that they, they cut this out of their budget, out of their expenses, that they noticed something about their little town. They would, they would look at the stream as it flowed through their little town, and before long it, brown, foamy gunk began to sort of brush up against the banks there. The stream still flowed, but it, was just, it just didn't quite look the same. Months went by, and this stream that once flowed in a, in a it wasn't a huge river, but it, it flowed steadily, began to get smaller, and it was, seemed like it was drying up. They launched an investigation. What they discovered was that the resource management that had been on the books for years went to this old mountain man who was a strange character who no one really knew and no one really cared to get to know, for years, this old mountain man had wandered the hills. He had hiked along that stream, and it was his job to clean out the stream. As trees fell up there in the forest, uh, and they blocked the, this stream from up high, it was his job. No one really knew it, but he would, he would walk along that stream, and he would, he would take those old branches out and take the thing, the, the leaves that fell in the fall and clogged up the stream, and it was his job. He would hike this stream and take care of it. And what they did in ignorance wound up hurting them. They discovered that this old man that do, did his job in secret behind closed doors, no one really knew who he was, no one knew what he did. His job was actually really, really important. And so they, they reversed their decision, they reinstated this, and the man went back to work. And before long, this little tiny town at the base of this mountain began to flourish again. The mill turned and gardens flourished Because a man who worked behind the scenes on a seemingly unimportant job was back to work again. That's what we see as the design in God's church. We see that God has given every single one of us a job to do. And some of those jobs are going to be up front. Some of those jobs will be to stand in this place and open the Bible and to teach and preach... Some of those jobs will be to sit behind a piano or behind a microphone, but others will be behind the scenes and no one will ever see. There are people who attend to the pockets and the seat backs and the chairs in this room to make sure that there are pens and connection cards and things like that here. Are those people any less important than any of the others? I would say to you, no. And this is the design that we see in Ephesians chapter 4 as God gives everyone a job to do. Let's look at this together. Verse 7 of Ephesians 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean, but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth or the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Simply describing that Jesus, who'd been worshipped by angels throughout eternity, put on flesh, and came to earth when his work here was done, that he left earth and ascended back to heaven. This is what it's saying. Pick up in, in verse eleven. One is, and this is the obvious one, you've heard me say this before, but every single believer, every single Christian has a gift. And you, you maybe you look at this and you say, well, no, not me. I'm, I'm really nobody. I don't really have anything to offer. And to say that is to call God a liar. Because His Word here tells us in verse 7 that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The reason each one of us has been given a gift is, verse Corinthians 12 tells us, that each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See, the reality is that we weren't called to Christ to follow Him in isolation. We were called to follow Christ in community. And there is a common good that we are all to seek out. And that's why each and every one of us has been gifted. I don't want to get too far into the weeds with spiritual gifts. The Bible lists out spiritual gifts in in three or four different places. There are over 20 different actual spiritual gifts that are listed for us, that are named in in all of those different places. None None of them include exactly the same list. None of them rank them in order of importance or value. And none of them are exhaustive because each one contains something that the other one didn't, right? I don't want to get too far into the weeds with that. I love John Piper's definition, really, of of spiritual giftedness. Listen to this. John Piper said, Your spiritual gift is the shape of God's grace flowing through your individuality. I, I think that's exactly right. That every single person in the family of God has a gift And God wants to display His grace through you as an individual for the common good. Here's some things that are new that I I looked at, and I think God would have us to hear this morning about these. Three truths about our gifts. One is, we haven't earned these gifts. None of us construct. We haven't haven't done anything to to, to say, this is mine because I deserve this. The Bible here says in verse 7, verse 7, but grace what is grace if you think about that if you just slow down and you get away from maybe you grew up in church and you've heard grace all your life if you just get away from it and think about it for a minute isn't grace something good that you have received that you didn't deserve maybe maybe i would say in all cases it's good for you it may not always feel good for you in the moment How many of you have ever received a grace that didn't feel good when you first received it? I mean, all of us have, right? I've walked through some things and I would would tell you today, I would never want to walk through that again. But I'm so thankful for what God did in me through that, right? Every, Every good gift comes down to you from the Father of lights. It is good for you, but more than good for you, it is meant to also be good for others. This is what grace is. Simply receiving something good that you don't deserve. There's common grace. Some examples of common grace would be getting to see a sunset over the ocean. You know, I love going to, to our beaches here in South Carolina, but I don't like the fact that you can't see the sunset over the beaches in South Carolina. For that reason, I love going to, into the Gulf and being able to see that there, when we went to, out to California uh, last year and we were there in Santa Monica and we got there just the right time and we went out on the Santa Monica Pier when the sun was setting over the Pacific Ocean, I'm telling you, it doesn't get much better than that, right? That's common grace. I don't have to be a believer. I don't have to be a Christian or a Christ follower to, in order to enjoy those things. That's common grace. God says, I'm going to give certain things to everyone. Another example of common grace would be indoor plumbing. Aren't you glad for the common grace of indoor plumbing? My family and I at Christmas, we played the role of Cousin Eddie. To the T, we showed up at my parents pulling our camper. We put the kids in the house. And my wife and I slept in the camper in the yard. The only thing about sleeping in the camper in the yard at your parents' house in the middle of December, is that you can't hook water up to it. So in the middle of the night, you don't have indoor plumbing. Is this a little too revealing for any of them? Anybody, like, it's probably a little uncouth, I guess, this morning. So at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, when... I'm already down this road. when nature calls there is a cold sprint into the house, right? So, I'm thankful for the common grace of a sunset over the ocean or an indoor plumbing or or an automatic coffee maker that I can program the night before, right? These are common graces. These are not just things that are inventions of humanity. Human ingenuity. This is the design of God in those human beings to create and reflect His glory. They are common graces of His good. But then there's also this special grace that we, in this place, as believers, know as the gospel. You ever, you ever stop to think about why you received the gospel and someone else hasn't? Anybody have a family member and you think, why, why am I a believer? And raised in the same home, my brother's not. My sister is not. You ever think about the fact that you were born where you were, where you got to hear the gospel over and over and over again? Maybe, maybe at the time when you were a child, your parents drug you to church and you hated to go, but you were there and God was planting the gospel into your ears and into your heart. And around the world, there are people who have never even heard the name of Jesus. They don't know about a man named Jesus, let alone what he's done. Why were you born where you were born? It's special grace. It's the gospel in your life. Here, Paul tells the Ephesians, we have not earned these gifts, they are grace. They are a a good gift that we have received that we we don't deserve. Here he also says that they are according to the measure of Christ's gift. He does not say that they are according to the measure of your investment. You have not earned these gifts. It is a short view of the cross that only thinks of forgiveness and heaven as as the gifts we receive from the Gospel. Are forgiveness in heaven gifts we receive from the Gospel? You better believe they are. And we should celebrate those things. And we should have this view of heaven that we long for Jesus to come. And we long for the day when we can enjoy Him forever. But it is a short view that only sees those as the benefits, the gifts of the gospel. Instead, there are gifts that we have been given right here and right now. If those were the only gifts, heaven and forgiveness, then would it not make sense that Jesus would have immediately taken us there? But instead, He's given us gifts that are to be used in the here and now. And they all flow from the gospel The unbeliever who can look at the sunset over the ocean, who enjoys indoor plumbing or an automatic automatic coffee maker does not have a spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift if you are a believer to be used now for the common good to show God's grace through your individuality. So first off, we haven't earned these. Secondly, we don't get to pick them I remember when I was a kid, uh, Christmas would come around. How many of you remember the, the JCPenney Wish Book? Right? Or the Sears Wish Book? Right? We didn't have iPads or the internet. There was no Amazon, which, by the way, the, what's the guy's name? CEO of Amazon now, the richest man in the world ever, history, right? We didn't have any of that. We had the JCPenney Wish Book, which was this catalog that came out, it was actual paper from actual trees, and it was put into a book, and you could flip through that thing, and you could look at clothes, and you could look at tools, but I wasn't interested in any of that. I was going to the toys, right? And I can remember as a kid sitting down with that and circling that, circling that, dog ear that page, right? And I'd go through the whole thing, I'd go through it over and over again, and I would just drool over all this stuff. And then I would take notebook paper, and I would meticulously go back through the, the JCPenney wish book and I would list out these things for my parents. Page, so-and-so. Item, so-and-so. Color, specific, right? And, I've, and I would go through then after I had listed all this out and I would then make copies of that list. I didn't have a copier. I was the copier. Just in case they didn't get it, Right? This was a level of idolatry in an eight-year-old's heart that was rarely seen, right? Is this the way that God teaches us about spiritual gifts? That somehow he has given us this wish book, and he says to us, I've put in everything in there. You can look at clothes, and you can look at tools. If you want, there's some fun things in there too. You go through, son, and you pick out what you want, and you let me know. Is that what God's done? No, God says, you don't get to pick these. Listen listen to what the Bible here says. The Bible in verses 11 and 12 says, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. There are specific roles here. And if if God teaches that we choose spiritual gifting the way that I chose toys from the JCPenney wish book, then the result should be that I should be jealous of those who have the gifts that I don't because I didn't receive what I wanted. So the question I would pose to you today is, should the evangelists have been envious of the apostles? I mean, I could hear the, the evangelists, you know, these early like, church planners that would go out with, with, in the early church. They went out and they preached the gospel. I could hear them maybe think, Lord, why did they get to be apostles and I didn't? I mean, Lord, all they did was argue and grumble all the time. I mean, Lord, these, I mean, the apostles were mostly those early disciples of Jesus. Paul was also an apostle. Matthias was added after Judas had committed suicide. But, but you know, I can hear these, these evangelists saying things like, Lord, they jockeyed for position all the time. They argued. If, what, can I be on your right hand when you enter your kingdom? Can I be on your left? They even confronted Jesus sometimes and said, no, 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 Jesus, you're wrong. To the point where Jesus even looked at them and said, get behind me, Satan, right? So should the evangelists look at these apostles and say, what? I mean, I know my own gifting. Lord, wouldn't you have made a better decision to have made me an apostle? Why those guys and not me? Should the shepherds, those early pastors, Should they have been envious of those evangelists, those church planters? I mean, would it be right for the shepherds to look at those evangelists and say, Man, if only I could have their job. I mean, their job is so exciting. They get to travel all the time. They get to go into places where, where the name of Jesus has never been preached. And man, they get to blaze new trails for the gospel. And here I am, I'm stuck here with these people. I'm a shepherd. I'm stuck here with these sheep. Can I be transparent with you this morning as a shepherd? And I'm not talking about anybody in this room, okay? But sometimes sheep stink. Sometimes they bite. I've been bit a few times. They're always wandering off. They've always got needs. Would it be right for a shepherd to look back at those church planners, the evangelists, and say, Man, if I could only have their job. Should they be that way? Should the the saints be envious of one another's gifting? Should we ask questions like, why does does that guy get to teach? I think I could do that. Why can't I do that? Why why does he get to be the guy up front? Should we say things like, man, I wish I had the gift of exhortation. Like, I'd love to be able to tell people what they're doing is wrong in Jesus' name too, right? Right? What about things like spiritual gifts? Like, like, like speaking in tongues, I mean. Does it still exist? Should we desire it? Should we be envious of those who claim to have a private prayer language or, or the gift of tongues? I don't want to get into the, to the weeds on any of this. My point to you is that I, I just want to say we don't get to choose our gifting. It would not be right for those evangelists to become envious of, of the apostles. It would not be right for, for the shepherds to become envious of the, the church planters or the evangelists. It would not be right for saints to become envious of one another in our gifting because we don't get to choose. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, For by, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, probably the go to on this, this subject. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 20, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. if all were a single member, where would the body be? If, As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I would say to you this morning that God has given each and every one of us a gift if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Christ. And it's not, a, it's not up to choo- us to choose what those gifts are. It's not up, up to us to be discontent in what we've been given. Instead, it is to find our contentment in the Lord and say, Lord, if this is what in your wisdom and your will you have seen fit that I would be given, then Lord, let me be like the man given five talents and let me go out and work my tail off to, to improve what you have given to me for the common good of your people here. We didn't earn it. We didn't choose it. And then here's the third. They aren't for us. Spiritual gifts aren't for us. They don't, when I say that, I don't mean like you could say, well, spiritual gifts aren't really for me. I don't have one because I've already told you you've got one if you are a believer. What I mean by that is God didn't give them to you in order for you to squander them on yourself. Again, verses 11 and 12 He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. I see in this a flow of succession. I want you to notice this. The apostles and prophets' gifting led directly to the need for evangelists. I mean, the the evangelists, when they went out, they preached what the apostles and prophets wrote and spoke. This is Pointing to when, when Paul here talks about the apostles and prophets, he's pointing to the canon of Scripture. And so their work led directly to the need for evangelists to go out and preach that work, right? Notice that the evangelist gifting led directly to the shepherds and teachers. I mean, churches were born when those evangelists would go out, they would preach and people would get saved. And all of a sudden, the evangelists would move on, but those new believers are still there in that city what do I do now? Well, there's now this need for a pastor, a shepherd, teacher to be there with them and teach them now how do you follow Christ. This is the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, even to the end of the age. He's with us, right? So there's a need here. The evangelist gifting was not for the evangelist. It's not so we can have these celebrity evangelists that just travel around and we go, man, that guy's cool. You know, I listen to his podcast all the time. You know, that's, that's not it. The, the gifting of the evangelists led to the need for these shepherds and teachers. And then notice, the, shepherd and, the shepherds and teachers' gifting led to the saints. After those evangelists moved out and the shepherds and teachers planted their lives there and began to teach and train believers, guess what? The church grew. And saints, there were more saints made. See, real disciples produced disciples. As pastors taught and led and and, and shepherded the people, the church grew and they produced disciples, and here we are today. But notice it's not over there. There's still a, a sequence here, a succession here. The saints' gifting leads to the body of Christ. Everyone using their gifts for one another. For building up the body of Christ, the Bible here says. So, one without the other is, is, would, would not be God's design. Each one of those was given to whoever it was given to in order to serve the next, in order to serve the next, in order to serve the next, and we are here today in order to serve one another. Our gifting is not for us. We don't hoard our gifts in order to spend them on ourselves. Uh, Went and watched a movie recently. I don't go to a whole lot of movies just because of the price of going to the movies, right? I mean, it's expensive to go to the movies. But we went and saw uh, All the Money in the World, a um, movie about John Paul Getty, who was, in 1973, the richest man in the world, made his fortune in the oil industry, getting oil out of the Middle East, right? Made, made his fortune. Uh, his, his grandson uh, was kidnapped, Uh, while he was in Europe somewhere. He was kidnapped, uh, and then a ransom demand came in to his grandfather knowing that this is the grandson of the richest man in the world. And so this ransom comes in. I don't want to... I guess I should say spoiler alert. uh, But anyway, um, I don't know what you're going to do at this point. Just put your fingers in your ears. But ransom comes in, $17 million. Give us $17 million, you can have your grandson back. Richest man in the world, John Paul Getty... He says, no. The level of, of um, materialism is revealed in his heart. He's got several other grandchildren, and so he sees this. If I pay off this ransom for this first grandson, and, and word gets out that this was a successful business venture for these kidnappers, then I will have more ransom notes and more kidnaps coming in, Right? And you say, well, yeah, there's some wisdom to that, I guess, but I don't know. The depravity of his heart is revealed as it goes on even further. He, he begins to, as it gets down to, and he, he finally is considering paying the ransom, he looks for ways that he can get tax credit for it. Uh, he, 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 um, he he spent his life acquiring things. Um, it was pointed out in the movie that, that he had bought all these different uh, paintings from, from history and all these things that were just worth millions and millions of dollars. And there's a scene in the movie where he looks at these things and he's buying this. You think he's going to, to like pay the ransom for his grandson. And when you get there, it's not his grandson at all. It's this new painting. It's not a new painting. It's an old one. But he unwraps it and he's looking at this thing with this lust in his eyes. He says, you know, people will always disappoint you. The things are what they are. At the end of the day, they are exactly what they appear to be. You know, is that how we are to use these gifts that we have received? Many of you have experiences in church where you've been burned. You've been hurt by people. People have disappointed you. Maybe it's not gone like you hoped it would go and you think, well, I'm not going to put myself out there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, use this thing when I'm just going to be, you know, ridiculed for doing it or it's going to be wasted effort for doing it. Is, is this where we should be? Should we at the end of the day say, you know what, people that are always going to disappoint you is therefore I'm just going to hold on to what God's given me. And I would say to you, absolutely not. The Bible here tells us that we are to use what He's given us not for ourselves, not hoard them for ourselves, but instead we are to spend them on behalf of one another. We don't get to bypass people no matter how many times they disappointed us. Our gifts are not for us. They are to be poured out over and over again for one another. So then... This is the issue of gifting, and these are three truths about our gifts, that that, um, we didn't earn them, we don't get to choose them, and they're not for us. What does the passage reveal to us about what happens if we use those? If every single one of us in here, every believer who has received a gift from God, if we all were to take that up and say, seriously, God, use me somehow. I don't know how you're going to do it, but God, use me. If we all did it, what would happen? The text here, the passage reveals two things. Number one, we get along. Unity. Verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Does this mean that we're all going to always perfectly get along? No. I talked to you last week that, that that unity has a tendency to drift and devolve. Remember? And we've got to work hard to maintain that. But if in that working that out, we're using the gifting that God has given us for the sake of one another, it produces this unity. It seems like the opposite of what would take place if we're all doing our own thing. And how does that result in us getting along if we're all doing our own thing? The answer is because we're not doing our own thing for our own reason. We're to do our own thing for God, for the gospel. I won't go into everything I was going to have here, but I want you to look at the descriptors of this unity here in verse 13. It's two descriptors. One is the unity, it's unity of the faith. And the other descriptor is it's unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. So, just a couple things here do unity of the faith, I talked to you last week about, it's not talking about the action of belief on our part. That's what we oftentimes think of when we think of faith. That is a definition for faith. But what it is referring to is those doctrinal statements in verses 4 through 6. Remember those seven ones? There's one Lord, one baptism, one, all those, right? It's talking about this doctrine. It's talking about Jude 3 where he's told, contend earnestly for the, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so one reason why each and every one of us doing the thing that God's given us doesn't produce chaos is because we're not doing it in our own way or for our own selfish reasons. Instead, we're coming back to the Bible and saying, God, what does your word tell us we are to be? And this will be the final arbiter of our direction, right? We don't get to choose. We don't get to say, you know, I think a church ought to be this. Or I think in this day and age, we ought to scrap that and start doing this. There's room for, for, in, for, for new ways of doing ministry, but there is never room for a new reason for doing ministry. You hear me? The reason never changes, and we find that reason in the pages of Scripture. We come to, we all attain to the unity of the faith. In, order, in other words, we're all growing in this, And that's why we still have a sermon as the central portion of this meeting. If we didn't believe this, that we're all somehow att- trying, trying to attain the unity of the faith, then we would say, well, that book's antiquated, it's old, it's dusty. You know what, people don't want to hear that anymore. People don't want to hear one guy at the front of the room talking to everyone else. We should just scrap this and let's all have dialogue. Let's just all come in and we'll ask the question. We'll read, maybe we'll read a verse. And then we'll just ask the question, what does this verse mean to you? And we'll let every single one of us, instead of having the sage on the stage, we'll let every one of us be the teacher in the room, right? I in no way see myself as a sage on a stage. But I do see that this book better be central to all that we do. This book better inform us on what we are to be and to do. Otherwise, if we sit this aside, it will be no time at all before we look no different from the world and we lose our message. The second descriptor of the unity here is the unity of the faith, but also the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. We don't merely walk in stuffy, dry doctrine, and don't hear me calling the Bible that because I don't believe that. I believe Hebrews four twelve tells us that it is it's alive, it's living, and it's active. It's sharper than any two edged sword. It's able to divide between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Right? God does surgery with His word, but this is not saying that we walk together in this dry, stuffy doctrine. But instead, we walk together in Christ in the gospel. The good news that He is our object of worship. He is the object of our faith. That He is to be our pursuit. We talked about this in my Sunday school class this morning. I should say Scotty's Sunday school class this morning. I am a participant in that class. And we talked about how Jesus can be found from any text in the Bible. That all of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, all of it is pointing to Jesus. That He is the object of our worship, our faith, our pursuit, And by using the gifts that each one of us have received, spending them for one another, that we help one another to see Jesus in this world. By using our gifts for one another, we are helping one another to know Jesus. In hard times, we help one another to know Him as the friend who does not forsake. In good times, we use our gifting. Some of you might have a, a gift of hospitality Or encouragement, right? And in good times, you can come alongside someone and you can rejoice with them. We can all, whether we have that gift or not, we are commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? And when we do that, we show Jesus to one another. We're unified in the knowledge of the Son of God. In waywardness, when we begin to drift and walk away from the Lord, we see Jesus in the words of rebuke from someone who cares enough and loves enough to say to us, you're straying here and I love you enough to point it out to you. Come back. Right? We show one another Jesus. In discouragement, we are encouraged and spurred along by one another as we use our giftedness. We are unified. We are unified in the knowledge of the Son as we use our gifts. So that's the first thing that happens as we get along. Second thing that happens is we grow up. And I won't spend nearly as much time here, but we grow up. We grow up to maturity, the Bible here says, in verse 13. To mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Christ is the bar. He is the standard. He is the goal. He is the target. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, said it this way. The glorified Christ provides the standard at which His people are to aim. The corporate Christ, in other words, the church. We are the corporate Christ. We're the bride of Christ, the body of Christ cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. So what happens is, if we take up our giftedness and we begin to walk in it and use it, not for ourselves, not envious of one another, but instead we use it for one another, then we, start, we begin to get along and we begin to grow up. What happens if we don't use our giftedness? What happens if we know this now, we know this truth, and we just choose to ignore it? Well, God, I know that you've given every single believer a gift, and I know that that includes me, but God, guess what? I just don't care. And that sounds audacious, and it is. And I'll just be a little frank with you. That's, that's pretty dumb, for lack of a better word. pretty cocky and arrogant to look at God and say God I know you've done this but I'm not going to do anything with it is that not the height of arrogance if you blessed one of your children with something and then you asked them to turn around and hey would you take out the garbage and they look at you and say no would you be happy with that So what happens if we ignore the fact that God has gifted us? Number one is verse fourteen tells us that we'll be childish, we'll be immature. Verse fourteen says so that we may no longer be children. And to the children in the room, I love you. I know this is not meant to be like derogatory toward you. I love you as your pastor. Uh, I, I want I want you to feel like you can you know come up to me past two weeks, we've had kids come up here as I start the sermon, right? This is not derogatory for you because you are where you are at this stage of life, but you're not intended, kids, to stay there. You will go through a process where you will grow. You will grow up. What is sad, church, is for adults to sit in the church for decades, hear sermon after sermon after sermon, Sit through Sunday school lesson after Sunday school lesson after Sunday school lesson. Attend program after program after program. And remain childish. That's sad. It points to one of two things. One is you're not really a believer, you're not a genuine Christian. Maybe. Maybe you have done the church thing all of your life, but if there has never been any fruit that has resulted from you following Christ, then as loving as I can possibly say this, but as confrontational as I can say this as as well, you're not not saved. And you you need to turn from your sin and put your trust squarely in Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. That while there is breath, pursue the Lord. As boldly as I can declare this to you, turn and trust the Lord. I am warning you, Because there will come a day for everyone who rejects the Gospel of Jesus Christ, there will definitively come a day when you will stand before Him and you will feel the wrath of God against your rejection. And you will not be able to say in that day, Jesus, I never knew. Because He will take you back through the corridors of time to this day And perhaps he will replay this moment when this preacher has stood and implored you to turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. The other thing that it may reveal if you are still childish after decades is that you are simply rejecting what he's given you and saying, I don't want to do anything with it. Maybe you need someone to come alongside you and disciple you. I don't know how those two things consist, you walk together. Maybe, maybe that can't happen, right? Maybe it can't happen that you can sit in church for decades and be saved and just not do anything with. I don't know. But I do know that I can't see everyone's heart. So perhaps you are saved and you just need to be obedient. Be obedient. And to be discipled. We are to grow up into maturity. The second thing that happens uh, if, if we ignore God's gifting is that we'll be pulled in every different direction. We'll be divided. And this is really just the opposite of what we said will happen if we, if we obey. This is the opposite because if we don't obey, this is what will happen. We'll be divided. We won't be unified. We'll be divided. We pulled in every different direction. Verse 14 also tells us that we'll be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. When people aren't serving a common vision and goal that is dictated in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, it's uncanny how people can come up with their own agenda. You, maybe you've heard it said that the ones who aren't rowing the boat oftentimes spend the most time rocking the boat. I think there's a lot of truth in that. If we, if we are a church that just sits back and says, Lord, I don't care. I know maybe you've given me this, but I don't care. I'm not going to do anything with it. Then we can never hope for unity in this place. We will be divided because the Bible here tells us that we'll be tossed to and fro, even down to the fact of deceitful scheming. One of the verses that God has just been placing before me this past week over and over again is out of 2 Corinthians 11 uh, that talks about that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and therefore don't be, don't be surprised when his demons also surprise, disguise themselves as workers of righteousness. I can, I've just not been able to get away from him this week thinking about that in every church... In every church of Jesus Christ, there are those who are not saved, who are being used of the devil. Deceitful scheming. The word cunning is used here. It literally refers to playing dice. It's used of trickery. It's that that shell game where you're trying to guess where the pea is underneath the shells. What What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? No, right? and i've been in churches where this has gone on where someone will come to you and they will say oh yes pastor wonderful sermon i just love you so much you know and i just think you are awesome and man if i could just be around you all day long it would be awesome you know and they leave my presence and they go to somebody else and they talk about what a despicable scumbag i am and i don't know the truth and da da da, da, da. this happens I would not be be doing you any favors if I didn't tell you this. Okay? But this is where we live. We live in the already. We are already believers. We are already citizens of God's kingdom. We have already been adopted into His family. We are already there, right? But yet we're not in heaven yet. These... These are not godly traits that he descri- describes here. If we refuse to walk in his giftedness, then we will begin to act more like Satan than we do God. That's why Ephesians 6, verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I'm almost out of time, so I've got I to show you what this means. What, what is God's ultimate... Desire and plan or goal for, for the church verses 15 and 16 tell us rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into, him, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love in those two, there are two things there that I've told you over and over again there's unity and there's maturity that we are to grow up and we were to build ourselves up in love. We were unified. Okay? This, is, this is God's plan for the body. That we would, we would grow up and we would be together. right? And then he sends us out from there. But this is what he means for internally for us as a church. As we use our giftedness. The application for us is, is just a few things. I don't want to skirt by these. But I just want to respect the time as well. Number one, trust God. If you are a believer here today, the Bible tells us that you have received a gift. So trust Him. You may not know what it is. You may not know how in the world He could use someone like you. I would point you back to 1 Corinthians where He tells us that He chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. When He called me to preach, I couldn't put three words together. I still come into this place sometimes with trepidation. I pray I always do. He chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God's not interested in putting together the dream team. Because if He puts together the dream team, then everybody looks at, man, look at all their abilities and efforts. And man, they're a bright bunch. But if He puts together a bunch of people who can't, find their way out of this room at times then the world looks in and says only God could do that. So trust Him. Number two, follow your leaders. It's obvious in this passage that verses 11 and 12 that He has this plan for the church that He gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers the saints to the body of Christ. I don't take my job here lightly. I'm human like anybody else. I go through seasons where burnout almost creeps in, and then I'm revived like anybody else. I'm dependent on the Spirit of God to breathe new life into me, just like you are. But follow your leaders. We're striving to equip you in things like midweek with our men's uh, men's group and and that prayer group that meets on Wednesday night. I, I'm going to do. Lord willing a better job in 2018 as far as giving you things that equip you for practical living out in your giftedness our Sunday school classes 3M our student ministry all these are ways that we're trying to equip you so take advantage of these and then lastly begin begin using your gifts to serve the body of Christ you know this is the hardest thing to do this is the absolute hardest thing of anything that I have said is to actually begin. Beginning means you got to do something. To this point, you could sit and go, "Amen, pastor." And you and I would never know if you did anything or not, right? You got to do it. We we've we tried to produce here disciples who make disciples. You know That's great material, but it breaks down if the disciples don't then make disciples. So begin. If you need help with that, I'll make myself available to you. We want to help you. There are others here that do as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Lord, I know I've gone long today, but God, I pray, Lord, that you would take it, and Lord, that you would apply it. Lord, that you would take your word, Lord, that you would Lord, deliver the gold of your word into the hearts of your people. Lord, take the dross that has come from me, and Lord, discard it. Glorify yourself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond. I'll be down here on the front row if you'd like to talk with me about how do you get going in this thing. We can set up times. It doesn't have to all be figured out on the front row, but I'll be glad to talk with you. If you're here today and you clearly heard the gospel today and you know that you must turn and trust the Lord, I'll be here. I'd love to speak with you. If you'd love to pray with somebody, there'll be people in a prayer room out to my right and your left. We would love to see you just do business with God today. Don't leave this place saying, no, God. Leave today saying yes. Let's respond in worship. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.